Hello and welcome to another episode of The Code of Career with me, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is James Heggs. James is currently CTO and co-founder of Tech Returners, which is an organization that gets people back into the technology industry after taking career breaks. In today's episode, myself and James discuss how we'd learn if we could do it all again. We also talk about the evolution of DevOps and, of course, what the government can do to help people both break into the industry or return to it. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, James. How are you doing? Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for thanks for asking me to come along. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. So for listeners who uh, aren't aware of you, or maybe haven't come across you, particularly on somewhere like LinkedIn, um, do you want to tell them a little bit about who you are, who you work for right now and what you do? Yeah. So, um, well, again, thank you for asking me to come along. Yeah, I'm James. I'm co-founder and CTO of an organization called Tech Returners. And uh, what we do as an organization is enable individuals that have had a uh, career break from an engineering career to return to those technical careers. Amongst other things we do around upskill as well. So existing engineers, if they wish to upskill uh, in new technologies, we do that as well. Okay, brilliant. So it's a way of addressing the skills gap by people who actually already have those skills. It's just they're not fully um, integrated back into the workplace yet. Is that usually the case where maybe someone takes some time away to uh, have a family or, or something like that and then decides to get back into the workforce? Is that often the, the, the case uh, of someone who goes through uh, tech returners? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, you summarized it spot on. Yeah. So it's for individuals that have had some form of a career break that can be like you said, quite, quite, quite commonly it's family, um, bringing up a family, um, and then are looking to come back to their engineering careers. So they might have had, you know, 15, 20 years career with different organisations and then have um, got to a stage where they would like to return um, to that career. They might have been, you know, a Java developer in, in the in previous roles and then they're wishing to return to those engineering careers uh, through the program um, and our program upskills those individuals with the latest approaches you know brings that kind of job and knowledge which the fundamentals hasn't gone away it's just the latest frameworks as it might be um, refreshes that skills and then they they go into organizations post that program yeah, that's a really interesting approach because I remember when I was learning to code, um, obviously I came from just straight up career changing and had never done anything related before. But a lot of people that I found myself learning with either in person or online, uh, people that I've made friends with via Twitter and that kind of thing, a lot of them had done um, a lot of coding work before and had taken time away, be that either to literally not work for a while uh, or they maybe went and took on uh, a... a non-hands-on role in yeah. an organization but still in the tech industry so and exactly like your your example there about how maybe they were using a more legacy form to java um a lot of the time they were learning stuff like react and that kind of thing to uh, uh to take on a more modern stack saying that java is obviously still very prevalent just uh, the more modern version so that's um yeah that's really interesting to hear and but for yourself how did you break into the industry initially yeah, so I mean, jumping back that that example there around the job, let's like, say if we took JavaScript for example, that's mm. a great example because we'll get engineers that when they were doing JavaScript, there wasn't the ES versions, mm. so they've got the core principles, but there certainly wasn't the ES enhancement. So we refresh on that, and like you mentioned, you know, the the rise of JavaScript frameworks now, like React, for them it might have been jQuery, 
um, as a basis or, or you know, um, prototype JS and things like that back, back when they were doing engineering. So it's refreshing on those kind of approaches, which is, you know, the, the world is quite different now in, in terms of engineering. But those skills haven't gone away. You know, those engineers, like the, the people you mentioned there, those skills haven't changed. The fundamentals of the languages still haven't changed, but um, the frameworks have done quite a bit. So, yeah. In terms of my um, own experience, so I, uh, I, if we if if take us right back, so I originally did AS levels and decided I didn't enjoy them. This is back in kind of 2002 and kind of flunked out really. Didn't, didn't enjoy them and, and then decided I want to go into software engineering. Um, so I did a BTEC. I don't know if they still do BTECs, but it was a BTEC. I think they're called something else now. T-levels. Yeah, T-level. Because it was BTECs when I left school, but I had a realisation, oh, I left school a decade ago, <laughs> like the other day. So actually it was a fair while ago, but yeah, it was BTECs. I think they've changed it to T-levels T rings a bell. That must be what it is. Yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it is. So yeah, I did uh, a BTEC in computing at the time and that was an enablement course for me to then go on to university um and actually if I go even further back than that I think the reason I got into it I remember having a conversation with my dad and my dad my dad passed away when I was 16 but prior to him passing away I remember him saying to me you want to get into computers son it's all going to be computers um, and he told this story and he's passed this off like this was true back at the time but he told this story that somebody said to him get into plastics you know, when he was young, everything's going to be made of plastic, which obviously has come full circle now and people are stopping mm. making things of plastic. But he said, I didn't listen to them. And it's actually that line that he passed off as somebody giving him this worldly advice was actually from a movie called The Graduate, I think. somebody I, I posted it on LinkedIn once. Somebody was like, that's a line from The Graduate. I was like, oh, my goodness. My dad uh, passed this line. But he hadn't used that line to persuade me to go into computers, which obviously settled in. Um, I did the kind of a BSc in software engineering, finished in 2007, um, went into a software engineering role as a Java developer, um, but like a, a, what you would call an agency nowadays. We, we called it a bespoke software house at the time. Um, and then, yeah, and then moved on to another organisation. And through that organisation, I joined as their first and only um employee and we scaled up to around 120 people at the point that i uh, departed and i was the head of development for that that organization responsible for people in lots of different disciplines different languages um on a SaaS based startup and then that brings us a bit further on i moved into devops consultancy working on government projects that are part of the gds scheme um, which was brilliant because I'd gone from kind of a, a SaaS-based startup where we can turn fast. We weren't, um, you know, we'd grown to 120 people, so we weren't kind of turning at the speed of a speedboat, but we were still a bit faster than, say, a government organisation. And then yeah, I can imagine. government organisation. Um, and it was a slightly different experience, which was, you know, great to see different sides. Um, and then I went back to... Um, back to that same organization for a bit longer where I previously was that startup for another couple of years and then set up tech returners with with Becky brilliant that must have been an amazing experience to go from being the first technical hire 
to working for an for a tech focused organization that's employing over 100 people you must have must have learned an awful lot very quickly and on your feet i can imagine yeah yeah we all did actually i mean it it, it was um yeah yeah you had to <laughs> i mean even the laughing in your voice you had to learn on the job and there's things back now that i look back that um rose-tinted spectacles you know kind of that well we'll just work out how to do it and not to have that baggage of so we say of experience or of bias to think there's a better way we can do this you know at the time cloud wasn't really too much adopted we were all on-prem kit um on-premise kit and and things like that so at the time we like we crafted it all ourselves we had this big massive relational database and and um, if I look back now, if, if somebody had set the same problem to me today, I'd probably sit there and go, no, that's, that, that's going to be tough to create. But because we had the kind of early stage, let's just set out about doing this, and you don't know what you don't know, it, it's quite freeing in a sense. Mm. Yeah. It, it's a really interesting point. I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently, about how, um, I, I don't know if you're a football fan, but I know, I know in football a lot of the time they – talk about how academies can over-drill players. So for, for non-sports fans, that would be that a young player is told what to do over and over again to the point where um, it's they almost don't think for themselves. Uh, and I guess if you're put in a position where suddenly you do have to think for yourself and you and you have to think outside the box and think about uh, a novel way to fix a problem, then it can be it can be really if you've never had to deal with it before and you don't have like you said the weight of expectation where you're sitting down I don't know how to do this I'm going to have to research it and I'm going to have to come up with a solution it, it's liberating and you may be able to get more done like you said it's a, it's an interesting idea yeah that, that just and that's why I think having diverse teams in terms of skill sets experience pays off because you'll have those people that do because they're not loaded with the bias of experience. And I don't just mean 10 years C-sharp experience. Mm. Like that. I just mean domain knowledge experience. They'll come in and say, oh, why do you do it like that? And they, they ask those questions, don't they? And you go, yeah, why do we do it like that? There is a better way. And, and they're not loaded with, like you said, that drill, absolutely yeah. drilled experience. Yeah. Mentoring is very much a two-way process, I like to think of that, where the, the junior, if you're doing it right, the juniors are often teaching the seniors just as much as the senior is teaching the junior. And if you're in that kind of situation in an organization where it's a two-way mentorship, then you're doing something right, I think, because the, the seniors can question, hold on, why do we do it this way? And then they can also learn the most up-to-date stuff that the juniors have been learning because it's fresh for them. Like, for example, when I broke into the industry, hooks are brand new, but uh, in React, and I just learned it because I was like, oh, I really hate these class-based components. What's the yeah. point? I love these hooks. Um, so I just learned hooks and I didn't realize that was just really handy domain knowledge to have uh, just because I learned it because it was standard. So I think people that are listening now that are juniors and panicking because people have more experience, like remember what you're learning now is the most absolute up-to-date stuff, which is actually really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And hooks is a great example. I was <laughs> the same. And But you almost, you know, when you've learned hooks, you almost, for the people that, like like you said, that have done class components and you know have have had to call like set state and things like that. Um, you almost want them to have felt a little bit of the pain of the past to know why <laughs> hooks exist, <laughs> but but to almost go just know that we've always closed that door and you never need to touch it again. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
And we talked about DevOps a little bit about how you went and did some consulting in that. And I think it's a question I get a lot and I can't always address it, to be honest, because I've never really done much DevOps stuff myself. But uh, I think a lot of people, when they're researching the industry, they say, hold on a minute, this seems quite a well-paid particular sector within the industry and the work looks interesting and the demand is booming. Uh, How can I get into this? So what would you advise to someone who is they're learning to code right now, they're getting ready to break into the industry and they see themselves going down the DevOps path. Um, firstly, what made you choose that path? And secondly, how would you advise someone goes about it in, in 2022? Yeah, so I, um, yeah, so I'll do the first part, why I why I why it interests me. So um, I found out about it really through feeling a bit of pain. So we, when we were deploying our software um it was being done at uh, kind of 2am 3am we weren't doing it kind of x times a day you know 10 times a day it was you know we weren't kind of every year but we were like once every three weeks let's say at the end of a sprint and it was very manual it it was we had ci processes but there wasn't too much automation and things like that and we we're doing it at 2am because that's when it was about you know or 4 a.m. when it was quiet in the UK and then also fairly quiet east coast of America because we had American customers as well. Um, And also I was a single point of failure. So another a really great book for people to have a read of if they're interested in DevOps is a book called The Phoenix Project. It's a bit of a novel. It's not even a textbook around DevOps. I'm sure you've read it. Do you know what I love about that? It, this is the second week in the row the Phoenix Project has been mentioned, so if that's oh. not an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and there's a character in it called Brent who basically is this conduit. Everything goes through Brent. If Brent's not there, everything stops. And we, we've had these in any... I'm sure you know you see them in any organisation. I'm sure you have as well. Um, and that was me. Like I was deploying and, and things like that, and I thought there's got to be a different way um, for doing this. And then I come across this thing called DevOps. Um, and kind of this way of operating of how organizations can transition. So that's how I entered it. And then that leads you down, because we're techie, aren't we? So that leads you down learning the tools and learning the, the, you know, automation. We've said it was Jenkins at the time that we used and how we can deploy. I think I read a white paper by Facebook about deploying 100 Mm. times a day and thinking we need to be Facebook and, you know, those kind of routes that we go. and that's how I approached it. Now, in terms of uh, how to get into the the that sector and why it's interesting, I think it can be quite daunting for people in the ops world. I think we can take our our minds back to you know the system ad, the sysadmins of the world, and they were laden with knowledge, you know, around operating systems, security, networking, all the kind of core around a lot of especially for web application world that we work in and it'd be quite daunting that you're the person that is on call at 2am if it breaks you do a release you might break it for 300 people 3,000 people 300,000 people 3 million you know that we can start to worry about the the aspects of it um but actually there is that 
But that's the same if we're a software developer, if we're a tester, you know, we might miss a test that is a really crucial test or, you know, we might make a bug and any software that we write, we probably should whisper it, but it will always have bugs, right? Every software we write, yeah. (laughs) So, um, so that's, that's always a case of the job, whatever role we do in terms of a technical role. Um, but with DevOps, you kind of have this two factors, really. You have this creativity of engineering practices. Now that, you know, things like version control, testing, they've all merged into the operations work that we do. Coding, you know, we write infrastructure as code. Mm. So you have that kind of creativity. And then a really good platform engineer, site reliability engineer, whatever job title we want to go to around cloud and DevOps will be really collaborative. Either that be internal um, customers, you know, other teams or collaborative if a customer's having an issue with the production kit or things like that. So actually, if you're really collaborative and you like working with other humans and interacting with them, and then also got that creativity side and you want to explore that in a different route in this case, cloud and infrastructure and provisioning and all those kind of things. Actually, I think it is a great route for people to to go down. So. Yeah, it, it, it's a fantastic one. And it seems very meritocratic from the outside, um, at least from what I've seen in organizations is the good DevOps people often rapidly rise up the ranks and it's a it's a good way to see your hard work rewarded because it is so obvious what you're doing and um for people who are maybe at the point where they're just writing code by themselves at the moment because they're trying to get their first job and maybe they haven't got into an organization yet what what actually is CICD if you were to explain to someone who'd never really come across it before yeah brilliant okay so um so it stands for continuous integration continuous deployment or continuous delivery there might be for some people might see it as ci cd cd there's a Mm. couple of phases um but if we take continuous integration first i always think of it and i think that's probably key why you phrase the questions if you're just writing code on your own that ci phase is where you're taking that code that somebody's written let's say as an individual to make the scenario easier and bring it into place with code that other people might have written as well. So imagine you're part of a team um, or multiple teams and you've got one developer working on one piece of the code base and another developer working on another piece of the code base. CI will be bringing those two pieces of code together and maybe running tests against it, maybe making sure that it works together um, in various mechanisms and uh, running tests against it, making sure it merged, bringing that code together essentially is a way of doing it. There is lots of different tools that you'll come across. You'll see different, you know, tools to name a few like Jenkins, Circle CI, GitHub Actions that can do this. That bringing it together phase that I talked about, we often get machines to do that. And they're some of the tools that you might come across. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one because it's definitely, I, I mean, I can speak for myself having gotten into an organization having just basically isolated learning to code for like a year in in the evenings like I never would have thought it was a problem because you just don't think about it and then you actually get into an organization and I think my first job there were like 40 developers I was like oh right okay I see why this is an issue now um so I, I would definitely say to people as well 
don't be like intimidated by it because I, I was for ages, even after I'd broken into, um, into the job. And actually, if I'm being totally transparent, really only this year, I've actually started looking into those scary YAML files in the repo <laughs> and reading YAML. about what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And actually, it's not as scary as I originally thought. So I definitely encourage people to have an explore um, about what's kind of going on and like, um, you know, we've talked already a bit about mentorship. Just um, speaking to senior DevOps people uh, is such a good idea for people if they want to learn more. Yeah, and you've probably you've probably already done an aspect of it. So that CI phase, if we shift onto the CD in a minute, if mm. people have used like GitHub Actions or GitHub Flows, I think they're called, um, to you know automate where it might not necessarily run tests, but it, maybe it builds it and then deploys it to something deploys it to a cloud platform or Heroku, you know, a lot of people will go down that route where it deploys. Well, you're kind of touching on CI, CD there. You know, if a lot of engineers yeah. have that that automation bug, don't we, where we're like, look, if I'm manually deploying something, I can look at, say, GitHub Actions or or something similar or Circle CI, write a little bit of code and it will deploy it up to Heroku or whatever it might be as, you know, as a hosting platform. Where well, you're actually touching into CI, CD there. You know, that's some of the things and like you said it is generally just yaml configuration files that that do that stuff yeah, yeah. exactly and github has got uh i think it is github actions yeah they, they've got some really good examples and tutorials like if you're just opening up a standard repo and you just look at the actions tab definitely like have a have a look through like you know you're not gonna 100 percent get everything in the first try like it you know it's still um technical stuff so you know there's a bit of trial and error involved and I think it's it's one of those things that's definitely a differentiator uh, for juniors if they can understand a bit about CICD and they're trying to get their first job. Like, I think even if you can't really 100% demonstrate it, but if you've been able to show that you've been able to at least mess around with it on some kind of personal project. I mean, for me, if I was recruiting a junior, I think that, that would look awesome, particularly if they were self-taught. Yeah, if they've got that background. And that's what we see with our returners. So they'll have, <clears throat> especially on a, like a, a version control access, they might have past experience of say SVN before mm. Git and they're used to having something integrate their code um into a main pipeline. Um so yeah absolutely seeing that kind of experience and knowing that you're in this wider ecosystem, isn't it? I think that's the key understanding there of that that comes through. So yeah. Yeah. So that's the the CI phase and then the C some people will say this cd which is the first cd <laughs> the first cd is continuous de delivery and then continuous deployment is the the, the latter cd i i tend to think of them as three and they're not necessarily levels of maturity of an organization mm. it just really depends on where an organization wants to get to so continuous delivery would be making the the code that's been integrated and tested and we think it's good to go making it ready to be deployed and we might still automate that deployment, but a human tends to get involved and kick that deployment off. And there's lots of reasons as to why that might be, why a human has to get involved. Um, and then when you go full CD, the, the final CD, um, that's where kind of if it's been automated and it's been tested, um, we've run automated tests against it, just get it out. So as soon as it's done, get it out. And the, the kind of theory behind it is... Um, Small increments means there's less changing each time and it's easier to reason about what's broken. And the, the, the smaller the time between the idea 
and it being in a customer's hands, the better, because yeah. we're more able to reason rather than recall something we did six months ago and go, what did, what's wrong with that? That's, it, that's the work in theory behind it. It's much closer to agile than waterfall on the spectrum, yeah. which is where we're trying to go. So, um, yeah, I mean, it may, it makes a lot of sense and, uh, yeah, like you say, you can get stuff out quickly. And so, something we were chatting about actually at work um, on uh, l- last week uh, was about deploying and having features behind switches and toggles, which I thought was a pretty cool way of doing it. Like just being able to toggle it for cert- for X amount of users or, um, you know, we've all done it, particularly on the front end where we push an absolutely horrific bug, um, realized immediately, you can just flick the switch off. It's great. Yeah. It's best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. My, um, my team, if they do listen to this, will be laughing because I'm a big proponent for this is, if it's done, get it out and and but do it in controlled ways. So, yeah, like you said, either blue green deployments or feature toggling. Turn it on for just two customers if you've got two hundred kind of thing, and then observe it. Um, yeah, or, or even labeling it as beta. You know, we we people get bought into that. There's that research around. I think it's is it a book called Com- A Complaint Is a Gift, but that people are happier if they find a bug with your software and you fix it, then had they never found the bug at all. That's not to say go and introduce bugs in your software and then fix them really quick. <laughs> Please don't take that as the advice. But um, yeah, that that getting it out there and getting some feedback early on it, I tend to go towards that. And then, you know, that, but I guess in the, the past probably has been called a bit of a testing production cowboy. But um, yeah. Feature yeah. toggling, I absolutely love feature toggling and, and those kind of routes to getting things out, getting it deployed, but also being able to controlled manner get feedback back from it. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't I haven't actually had the opportunity to try it out yet, but after browsing the landing pages of a few providers that do it, I was like, I I am thinking this is awesome. And I've got a couple of ideas that I'm gonna like build um over Christmas, uh, is the plan. So I'm gonna try and stick it stick some stuff behind theirs. Uh there, there there won't be any users yet, but just the idea that you can just roll something out and toggle it mm. on and off like that, it's uh it's really cool. And um we've already talked a bit about tech returners, but what what's the story behind the organization? Because obviously you you are um, you are the co-founder and CTO of it. What made you decide to set it up? And what what's the what's a typical day like? What what's your mission uh, in terms of day to day? Yeah, so um, we decided to set it up. So we wanted we, we Becky, my co-founder, she um, experienced so she was on the senior leadership team with us on the, the same SaaS space startup and had a uh, I mean you wouldn't even class it as a career break but was the only parent on that leadership team mm. and then returned to work following maternity break and found that kind of loss of network um loss of kind of staying up to date with the business what was going on and thinking there must be other people that feel like this so if you imagine that experience in in one hand um, she then led her to set up Women in Tech North, uh, which is, um, I think it's like the third or fourth biggest uh, women in tech network in the world now, um, and found that other people had experienced this kind of feeling coming back from a break, not necessarily just related to women, but people that had had a career break. So we then, as we'd set up this new organization, we were both consulting at the time, like we'd set up a new business, but we were consulting Becky from a people standpoint, me from a a technical standpoint doing DevOps consultancy. Um, 
um, and we set up a pilot to find out really if we'd got existing engineers that were looking to return. Uh, we had no commercial model behind it. We just thought we'd put on a few sessions around engineering practices, coding, uh, getting back to coding kind of thing and see if people did it. And we, we had our initial cohort was all women and we had a um, really successful cohort. People went into organizations like AO and Think Money and things like that. Uh, and then we did another one. Again, that was like 90% women looking to return. And then we had that decision to make, do we do we go for this or do we stay with the consultancy bit? And thankfully, we got our first customer that helped make that decision a little bit easier, which was the BBC. Um, and they were looking to run their own program for engineers. Um, and we always centered in terms of the mission, we always centered on the fact that we didn't want to charge money to the individuals that already had these skills. They just needed refreshing, i.e. the returners. So we always centered on what we would call accessibility. We wanted the, the program to be uh, free of charge. We didn't want to charge those individuals to access careers that they'd already mm-hmm you know done and accessible from a time time standpoint because if you've got somebody that's taken a career break maybe for caring responsibilities family or or health if we made them made it a full-time program then they did incur cost in another way so it might be nursery costs or it might be um having to offload onto family you know those kind of cognitive costs as yeah well. pe- people don't view uh time as an economic unit which i think is a bit unfair like when you know a lot of time people are using their time to do unpaid labor and and that kind of situation so yeah i, I think it's awesome that you took that into account because it is people really don't think about it with either you know people that are trying to get back into the workforce yeah absolutely yeah i'm so glad you said that yeah it is that's it, it and it, it's a commitment on their behalf like they're already making they're already giving up a lot of time to the program so we thought we wanted to keep it free, but then we had that aspect of like, yeah, but we, we, we still need to have a job <laughs> and get paid. So how do yeah. we commercialize it? So our model is that we will get, let's say, a cohort of um, 12 to 18 individuals that have had past engineer uh, careers and we'll work with a sponsoring organization. And what they will do is pay for that program. And at the end of the program, they can hire as many of those individuals as they like. Um, and what that does is means in that partnership, we'll share with the returners who the sponsoring organization is, what the technical stack is. The sponsoring organization will do talks throughout the eight weeks of the program. And then they'll interview them at the end using their usual interview practices. And because they've got the past skills, they tend to join at different, you know, uh, you know, certainly not earlier stage careers, but later levels in terms of progression frameworks and things like that. So, generally, the businesses will work, that will work with us want to have an impact on diversity. Sixty percent of our cohort generally is women. Um, is one one factor. We also have diversity in different forms, um, especially like international disposition and things like that. People returning to their careers, um, and then. They want to have a big impact on diversity, but they also want it at a decent level in terms of engineering skills. And that's the kind of niche that we we focus in on. Yeah. Yeah. That's really that's really interesting. And I think it's such a uh fantastic combination of 
addressing a real problem in the tech industry, doing some good, and also as well, just providing a useful uh, service for these organizations as well, as well as uh, helping out organizations and people by connecting great people with great organizations. So um, I think that's, uh, yeah, that sounds really, really fantastic. So um, in, in terms of that, so you you actually have the organization basically get partnered with you for the duration then. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. So we've had like over the, the this past year, we've had um kind of the Guardian is an organization mm-hmm. we've worked with, booking.com on the beach, checkout.com down in London. Yeah, and we'll partner with them. The good thing is, is it also helps the returners self-select. So because there's a sponsoring organization, if you want to particularly work at the Guardian, you can see up front, well, at the end of this program, it's for a job with the Guardian. Um and yeah and so it helps them understand well was that the type of organization i want to work for at the end of this and do i want to so the guardian scala do i want to be doing scala at the end of the program and it helps them select whereas say for booking it's java Mm -hmm. engineers might look at well i've got x years of java experience i'm going to go for that one instead and yeah and we'll, we'll on average we'll get kind of sometimes above 200 people apply for our program for six you know 12 to 18 places so um there's definitely return is there yeah that's uh, that's really cool i've heard uh, i've heard the guardian um their tech department they're really uh, they're really rock stars like they've um they've done a lot for open source from what i understand yeah they 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 open source their technical interviews as well Oh really? So all their really yeah, cool. all their interview process is open source, so you can go and see it on GitHub. Um, it's all there. Um, you can see the catters that you'll work through. Um, if you go for a, a pairing exercise and things like that. So yeah, it is all, it is all there. I'll put a link to that in the description. So I think the listeners often get a bit worried about their first technical interviews. So just actually having an organisation that's willing to give out examples that i mean that's such good press but that is such a good uh way for people to practice those interview skills before they actually get into one because one of the most common questions we get on like the discord codecareer.com slash discord if you want to join um you you find that uh people just get scared about the technical interviews because they can't really simulate it and actually if it's available um for them on on somewhere like github that that's fantastic i'm really really glad to hear that they're doing that yeah absolutely and that's that scaredness that that is pervasive isn't it in our industry i mean i mean we've felt it ourselves haven't we i'm sure you've felt the same yeah. thing around that. um and and part of a lot of our programs so we do the technical upskilling but we also 50 percent of the program is also what we call career and mindset so we talk about confidence um confidence on camera if you're going to do interviews like this um we give them interview preparation so we've got our career and mindset coaches um, that will really drill down into the interviews. We, I, I, Millie, um, that does our career and mindset coaching, she's like forensic with the sponsoring organisations, <laughs> like really gets to grips with their values and things like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And I quite often, we'll probably have a little chat about that, the, t- the tech tasks and things. I quite often think tech tasks, they get a bit of a bad rep, like... Um, you know, the pairing, live coding, under pressure and those kind of things. But I think it, it tends not to be the the tech task that's the bad reputation. It's the execution. You know, mm. people say, we would like you to do this pairing 
exercise and then you sit in an interview with somebody that just doesn't speak or looks at the phone I've heard stories like that you know people where they're in an interview and the person they're paying with is just looking at the phone or sort of things like that and it's not it's not the tech task that's bad it's it's the execution of how that's done yeah my last interview round with uh, last time I switched jobs um one of the reasons why I chose the job I did was how good the pairing interview was uh and that morning I had the flu um but the guy who actually is now the lead engineer on the team I work on, he was so good to pair with and really put me at ease. It, it makes such a difference. And by, by comparison, I'd done one that morning uh, with another organization. Well, obviously, I'm not going to name, um, but I looked like absolute death. And then they gave me the most vague instructions to build something that was completely commercially useless. Um, and then the guy sat there silently. Uh, no, two of them, which made it even worse. There was two of them sitting there silently. And then um, the worst one was one of them kept going, oof, if I did something. Or he'd be like, oh, oh I'm not sure I'd do that. But then like he wouldn't say kind of what way I should be thinking. Um, and then he was like, oh, you have X amount of time. And I'm pretty sure he then didn't start the timer or something. So nothing like looking on phones, that, that would be even worse. But yeah, I mean, I, I've also heard my fair share of horror stories from it. I mean, do you, do you think the pairing task is the optimal technical task? Because I personally, I think we need some kind of technical task, but I'm not sure what's best. Yeah, I think on that, on that, what was that, you know, and you said the good, good experience, what was it that stood out that, you know, it made you take the role because you're not the first to say that? Yeah, so he, um, he basically explained how he thought he was going to do it. Um, and he said, basically, I'm going to chat along with you while you do it. And like he said, just explain to me what you're thinking. Don't be afraid to write out pseudocode. Don't be afraid to write something out and then go back and refactor it and, and do it an ugly way. Uh, sorry, do it the ugly way and then and then, and then yeah. do it the nice way. Um, and then he said as well, uh, basically the API we were using had an error and it, would, it could have really put me in a tailspin. And then he tried to look at it from his side. He was like, yeah, there's definitely something wrong with this API. And then he just made it really, he really put me at ease by joking about it. Um, and he was like, we're just going to, uh, he came up with some kind of alternative. I can't remember what it was, but just doing that just put me at ease. And I thought, I'm going to be working with lead engineers like this. This is probably the kind of organization I want to go ahead and work for. So yeah, that that's what helped. Yeah, absolutely. That And that's it, isn't it? Because it, if you feel that it's a peerage that you're pairing, you know, even if you don't end up hiring that person, but if they've come away from that interview feeling like they were working, you were working together rather than being assessed, then you've created the right environment to see the best of someone. You know, at the end of that interview, they could have still seen five or six engineers that were all similar levels to yourself. Amazingly, you've got that opportunity, but there might have been other people that they give that same experience to. And they've enabled those people to see the best of them, whatever level they're at, early stage, returners or whatever it might be. You've gave that person the best chance to see. Anything other than that, you're just assessing their performance under pressure. Mm. And we we never we never code under pressure like that. Like we we, yeah. we just don't there's times when, don't get me wrong, when we're the system is down or whatever it might be, and we're trying to work out what it is. But in that case, it tends to be a huddle. There's six of us looking at it, trying to work. So we never think yeah, but I, I think, yeah, coming back to your, the tech task aspect, I think we'll always face in our industry some form of live validation. Like even if it's a take-home tech task that you work on and then you bring it back in, there'll be something that that team wants to do to check that it was you that did it. Um, 
whether that's pairing um, on a tech task or um, you bringing in the code that you've done and then saying, what would you do if we changed it to this or talk to us about how you've set it up? You know, I've done those kind of ones. But it, irrespective, either way, we've got to be in a place where we're comfortable to reason about our code, to explain back our decisions. And when an organization does that, um, <clears throat> what they're looking to understand from you is, is, are you able to reason about it? How do you take feedback? You know, there'll be bits where like, like that person, what they done really well was set boundaries for you. They were like, yeah, do it, do it. The imperative, you know, the 10 line version before we start to do a bit of chaining or things like that. And so you then knew, okay, well, I can work through this that way and then let's refactor. But either way, they'd set those boundaries for you so that you yeah. could then reason about it. it. It allowed you to then go, look, I know I'm doing this with a for loop, the old style way, but maybe I'll do it with a map next or a for each or whatever. Um, it allowed you to say that and then they get an insight into your thinking. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very powerful for that reason. And then there's obviously the basic side of things where you just need to make sure the person can code. Like I've always had this, argue, uh, well, I got a huge bust up with someone on LinkedIn actually um, because... <laughs> He he basically called me an idiot because I said that um, uh, he said, why should I have to prove that I'm a software engineer? You don't ask the plumber to do some plumbing for you first. And I said, yes, but city and guilds accreditation. So people outside the UK, that's basically a centralized accreditation to say that someone can be a plumber and will not forgive me, but flood raw sewage all over your bathroom. Like it's <laughs> like, it's one of those things where um, we don't have any central accreditation in software engineering. I think that's a good thing. However, the consequence of that means that we are going to have to put up with doing a technical interview. So that's why I feel they're necessary. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, <laughs> it's because we're the wild west, isn't it? We're, we're not, <laughs> there's no, there's nobody checks our work and signs us off kind of thing. Like, like same with, I always use the same analogy. Because we, if there was some kind of formal levels that we get to, and you know, this is what level we have formally signed them off, though, then you probably might see that. But I think because it's a creative pursuit, it's quite hard to put something like that in place for for yeah. what we do. So you have to have something exactly. This, I mm. yeah, I'm totally with you. It, it would be harmful for diversity and inclusion if we did put in these accreditations because it would stop people that are self-taught or, yeah. um, you know, or maybe couldn't, if it was university-based, maybe couldn't afford to go to university or something like that. You know, it would be, so I think it's, you know, it's great for our industry that we don't have it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I wish I'd have seen that debate happen on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> I think it may have ended me being blocked, you know. I was very, <laughs> it was a very angry senior developer that obviously just failed an interview. Uh, <laughs> Um, so on a related note to how we can, um, how we can shape the industry in the future and, and, um, meet the, uh, the tech skills gap that's often talked about. Um, I think the government has been trying how effective it is. Um, you know, I think it's a bit too early to tell at the moment. Um, what do you think kind of public policy decisions, um, can, can governments make either in the UK or elsewhere, um, particularly among like tech returners, um, to close that skills gap? What, what kind of schemes can be supported? Where should funding be diverted to? 
Yeah, so we've done quite a bit of work with Greater Manchester Combined Authority. They funded um, programmes that we've done. Um, we've got a programme that's on at the minute for anybody based in the Liverpool City region for uh, um, people to do DevOps upskill. So uh, have a look at that if people are listening. Um, and that's funded by <laughs> Liverpool Combined Authority, um, which is great. Um in terms of some of the things, if I flip it a different way, some of the experiences we've had, we get quite often we'll get um, engineers looking to return that are on, say, universal credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, a part of that, as I understand it, is they'll, they'll have to apply for roles or be seen to be applying for roles. And of course, at the end of our programme, all things being well, they're going to have a role that is a high paying salary. Our average salary is 48 coming out of the back of the programme across all the programmes. That's a great starting average salary. Yeah, yeah. In ter- because people are seeing that they're an engineer with X number of years experience. You know, we've had people that, I mean, a bit of a side story. I, I always go back to a story where I met an engineer who um, was not forthcoming with his past experience. His confidence was super low. In fact, got really upset in the interview. So built him back up, carried on exploring his past career and he's like yeah I was a lead tester at a games firm in Derbyshire and um, I was like well back then there was probably only a couple of games firms in Derbyshire I was like you didn't work at like Core or IDOS did you he was like yeah I was a lead tester I was like, I was like did you test Grand Theft Auto and Tomb Raider was like yeah that's that's what I used to do and he, he, he thought that wasn't relevant to share um, yeah. so anyway yeah come, we have those kind of stories of the, the skills that are there Oh, but we do also sometimes clash heads a little bit with universal credit because they'll be saying to our returners, you need to go and apply for this job. And it might be mm. um, a different type of job, let's say delivery driver or whatever it might be. And they're like, but I'm doing this program. And at the end of it, I'm going to get, a, you know, hopefully a salary, you know, touching fifth. Then we've had, we've certainly definitely had more. Um, and that's one of the things where if, if we can get a closer relationship with them to say, no, they are on the program. Can you make sure that for this period of time, they don't need to apply for roles. It actually eases a lot of people into doing our program. A lot of them, a lot of returners might be put off doing our program because they know that to maintain their universal credit and to keep those payments up, they need to be going for interviews or attending their UC meetings and, and things like that. That's one thing where it shifts a little bit. Having said that, so that's one thing. If anybody's listening in, in government, maybe get in touch with us and, and see if there's anything we can do or we can be trained on how to put those arguments better a bit forward. Um, having said that, there are lots of funding organisations um, now. So we've got a programme that's just started focusing on return. We've got 27 people on that programme. That's funded by the Department for Education for focusing on returners with partnership with uh, North Coders which is a coding boot camp in, uh, in, well, in the UK now. But yeah, they've expanded a lot, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a great, uh, you know, for early stage careers, but we've partnered with them to be able to offer returners as well. And that's funded by the uh, Department for Education. So there's, there's definitely aspects there uh, for people being able to do it. Yeah, 
that um, that sounds really cool. And then uh, in terms of for people that uh, do you think it kind of similar approach required basically for people that are trying to break in with no prior experience? Because I guess it, it kind of fits the same mold, right? Not trying to stop people from attending so they can meet their UC requirements and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that that's it. And I think, you know, for people breaking in, it, I've had a couple of questions, a couple of people will always contact me and say, I'm thinking of breaking in. And I always think, and I bet you've said the same to people is, first of all, find out if it's fun. Do as much as you can for free. You know, the free code camps, um, going to meetups, just brilliant to immerse yourself in the community. Find out if even being in the community is fun. doesn't matter if you've got no experience. Go along to a, a meetup about React or Python or whatever it might be. Yeah, people love to help. And people it's love really to help, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if it feels fun, you know, if you have that moment where you've wrote, you've, you know, you've written a little bit of code, and you look at it and it prints hello, right? But you get that kick and you've got that moment where you turn to a friend or a family member or a partner or whatever it might be. And you go, look, and they go, is, is that all it does? But to you, that's amazing. Pursue that because that will stick with you because then it's hobbyist, then it's vocational. So do as much as you can for free and then explore th- the free programs. There's lots of free programs out there. Um, because it can be done without paying extortionate figures and boot camps. Having said that, the boot camps are, are, are still, they are very good. Um, like the, the, my main connection is with the North Coders one. That's that's a brilliant boot camp. A lot of their programs are now funded, so they're, they're free for people to, to work through. But yeah, I always say to people, find out if it's fun. Because when the going gets tough and you're trying, like we were talking about React Hooks, weren't we? You're trying to work out how to do global state management with the context API or something like that. It's the passion and the fun that will get you through that. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, what was the phrase for it? It's definitely not the canyon of despair, but uh, it's like <laughs> the, your like basically mental health and you're learning to code. It peaks at really high at the start and you're like, this is amazing. I'm printing out hello world. Like I'm going to shout, I want to shout this to the world. This is so great. And then, um, then it crashes because you're learning the the kind of medium level skills and it's a real slog. I remember being so frustrated, plugging away at free code camp, um, trying to figure out how to strip vowels out of an array of strings. Um, and I remember I, I literally on basically on the verge of tears, which is really unlike me, just so frustrated. Um, and I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And it's like, I still remember that. And I was like four years ago and, um, you hit these really low points then eventually you come out the other side when you're able to make a full stack project by yourself like not like there is no better feeling in 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 the whole world it's um it's awesome but yeah getting through that canyon of despair um, i'm gonna find out what it's actually called and put it in the description put it yeah we'll put it in (laughs) (laughs) that you know that i often that totally that i remember my so i finished in say 2007 and at that point my first java job um was I was paid 16,500 per year, which is my first Java job. I remember it now. I think it started at 16 and then it went to 16,500. Um, and it was for the first two years, I, I had that bit, you know, where you'd face a problem in the day and you'd go home that night um, and you'd be like, yeah, there's only one thing for it. I'm going to have to quit in the morning. I cannot solve this. I, you know, I'm, I must be in the wrong job. 
uh, have those moments of, yeah, I don't, I've got no idea. I've sold this. I'm, I'm definitely in the wrong job. I'm going to have to quit. And those moments of second guessing yourself and then you come back the next day. Like you mentioned before, a good mentor helps. I had a great mentor mm. when I first started um, would kind of steer me in the right direction. And then bit by bit, it, was, it wasn't until probably 18 months to two years that I didn't, those feelings started to subside and think you'd see a problem and go, <clears throat> okay, yeah, I think I, I've seen something like this before. I can work through it. But, yeah, certainly I remember have those moments going, I'm going to get found out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that doesn't solve imposter syndrome. Like, yeah, just feeling, oh, how have I I, – I always figured, oh, no, I've managed to um, basically blag my way into this job. Um, you know, how, I'm going to get found out. Like, I, I'm not really a software engineer, you know. And then there is – a it's interesting you said, I think you said two years, right? Because I reckon that was a point for me as well. So actually relatively recently for me, I suddenly felt a lot more confident in my abilities mm. and um, it felt so much better, but it, it does get there. And then, uh, so the best thing you can do once you, if anyone's listening, who's already hit that point is try and start helping and mentoring other people. Um, because if you can make the difference that hopefully someone made for you, um, you know, it's a circle of life. And like we were saying earlier, it, mentoring is a two-way street. Yeah, absolutely. Embed your own knowledge, doesn't it, as well? Because you have to try and explain it back and, and people asking, why is it like that? that? I found that really, when we first set up Tech Returners, I found that really hard, that transition, you know, and somebody said, why do you do it like that? You know, mm. not you can't go to, because you do. Like you can't, that's, not a, that's not a valid re- reason for somebody that's learning. And it wasn't a valid reason for me to use either, so that kind of yeah being able to reason about code and explain it back and why it's done that way and um, was was really powerful for me to try and understand it as well yeah it, it, it's such an underrated skill being able to explain technical concepts to people either who are less uh, who are more junior than you um and are technical or especially to non-technical people. So particularly for um, maybe not even necessarily tech returners here, like uh, someone who's getting into tech for the first time who maybe comes from a customer-oriented background, that can be a really useful skill to transfer over. And yeah, if you can explain technical concepts to people either who are less experienced or straight up not in that area, that's such a powerful skill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's more or less sort of covered off uh, all the main topics I had on the show notes. So um, just a massive thanks, James, for uh, for coming on the show. Um, was there anything in particular you wanted to shout out? How can people find out more about Tech Returners and if they're interested? Yeah, so I think you can pop my LinkedIn. Um, please, if people are interested, please, by all means, do message me um, on LinkedIn. That's probably the best one. Um, we run programs throughout the year. We're, we're just about to start hiring for our next uh, couple of programs um, starting in January 2023. So they'll be out soon for the returner program. Um, and then also, if you have a look on techreturners.com, there's the DevOps upskill program. If you are based in Liverpool, that's an upskill program that we're uh, looking at. Later on in the year, um, we do also run a conference called Reframe, uh, Reframe Women in Tech Conference based in Manchester. And uh, that's a two-day conference that takes place in March um, on reframe-wit.com. Um, but again, I'm sure you'll pop the, the links in there for us. But uh, yeah. yeah. All that will be down in the description. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really interesting chat. And uh, yeah, it's been, been really great. We should do it again sometime. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, lovely to meet you.
Cool. Uh, and thanks as well to the listeners for checking out another episode of Decoder Career. Um, we got some awesome results from the Spotify rap for podcasters this year. So thanks so much for all your support. Uh, here's to a great 2023. Have a great Christmas, depending on if this is released or not, pre or post Christmas. Either I hope you had a great one and happy new year. Thanks everyone.